at a conference in DC, and he asked me to fill in um, for our uh, series that we're going through Hebrews, and now we're on Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. And it's going to make it difficult when I write. <laughs> but so what I first want to talk about is, is strategy. And a lot of times in life, we know exactly what we want to accomplish, and we know where we are, but we don't know really the best way to get from point A to point B. And typically, it helps us a lot to sit down beforehand, think of all of our options, and say, all right, how can we best achieve this goal in the most efficient manner possible? And when I think about this, I think about a time a couple summers ago when I was backpacking through Mount Rainier with some friends, and we were going on this 20-mile backpacking adventure, and about eight miles in, we get to this river, and we've been crossing rivers the whole time. And there's typically these nice, convenient log bridges whenever the trail led into the river. This time, there was not one of those. And the, the stream was going pretty quickly, and our first gut reaction was, all right, let's just take, roll up our pant legs, take off our shoes and socks, and just trek across this river. So we spend all this time looking for these big sticks that are going to stabilize us in the current as we walk across. And so we end up getting to the other side, and as we're sitting there on the bank, we did what we wanted to do, and then we're putting our shoes and stuff on, and we look about 100 yards up the river. Perfectly good wood bridge that we could have used. <laughs> and so a lot of times, and it would have helped us a lot if we sat down and was like, okay, Here's the situation. We need to cross this river. What's the best way to do it? Look at all of our options and then execute. And I think reading the Bible is a very similar situation in that what we want to do is we want to draw meaning out of the text. And a big word that has to do with that is called hermeneutics. And it uh, comes from the Greek word for interpreter. And so that's what we're going to be talking about a bit today. You have to forgive my terrible handwriting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny that Joel talked about orthodoxy and orthopraxy last week, and Brandon, who was unable to join us because his uh, wife is sick, um, made the astute observation that I would use bigger words than Joel. And as he said that, I was like, orthopraxy. I was like, hey, <laughs> darn it, he's right. <laughs> and so... And so hermeneutics is really just the study on how we go from words on a page to meaning into our lives. And with the Bible, really what we want to end up doing is to learn more about God, learn more about Jesus, and then, in view of that knowledge, learn how to conduct our lives best. And so we get the Bible. It's a pretty daunting thing. It's, you know, words on a page to begin with, but it's not really one whole narrative. It's 66 books written by a ton of different people at a ton of different times, all communicating different things. And so if we want to get from these words on a page and make things more complicated, they're written in a different language than the one we speak, so they have to be translated to begin with. If we want to get from the words on a page to meaning in our lives, we have to do some work, and we have to kind of come up with a strategy on how to pull meaning out of the text. And so it, a lot of times it makes sense to think about things like, who wrote this book? Who was he writing to? Why did he write this book? What genre is it? In the Bible, we have any, everything from history to epistle, which is the letter, poetry, parable, and apocalyptic. And all of those are completely different genres that kind of demand to be read in different ways. And so a lot of times we just need to think about what is the best way to get meaning from this text. And different texts will lend themselves to different strategies. And there are good hermeneutics, there are bad hermeneutics. And an example of a terrible one is to just take all of my preconceived notions of who God is, who Jesus is, pour through the text, find all the verses that agree with that, and then triumphantly walk away and say, I know God, I know Jesus, and he looks a heck of a lot like me. 
And, but, but in reality, you didn't do what you set out to do, which is to learn more about God, to learn more about Jesus, and in view of that knowledge, conduct your life in a different way. And so some good hermeneutics are um, just what most people do anyways, just to crack the Bible open and read, and just to see what meaning comes out of that. And I think a per- perfect example of a good of a passage that this is good for is in 1 John 3, 1. It says, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So without knowing who wrote that, when they wrote that, who was writing it to, just having that knowledge spoken to me that I am a child of God, the God of this universe is uh, in all of my failures and all of my shortcomings, decides to call me his child, you can learn a tremendous amount about God and about us just by looking at that verse without any contextual stuff going on there. And so another thing is another method that you can use to draw meaning out of the text is to just take a chunk, maybe a chapter, maybe a couple verses, and just to read it over and over and over and over again, and to meditate and pray on it, and just seek out the Spirit's wisdom, and just have the Lord really guide you into what his, he wants you to learn from that. And so you can do that on your own. But then what I want to talk about now is sometimes it really helps to step into the shoes of the original audience that the book or the letter was written to. What was the original author trying to communicate to that audience? And how can we, how can that benefit our understanding? And so I think Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 is a perfect example of that. And um, we're going to have it read to us. And But, but first, just let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity just to get into your word. And just to have you direct and guide us that it pleases you that we can learn more about you and learn more about Jesus. And that we can submit ourselves to you and you can guide our lives in a way that we just would never be able to think of by ourselves. So, Lord, please just we invite your spirit <laughs> to this place. Just give us your word and, um, and guide us as a church to live in a way that honors you, God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Alright, so there are a couple of things in there that would have jumped right off the page to the original audience of the letter, that really wouldn't jump off the page to us. And... One of those things is this mention of this guy, Joshua. And so the author of this letter mentioned this this person that obviously was implied that 
the people he was talking to knew who he was. So what was he trying to communicate through bringing up this guy, and what was he trying to do through that? And second, for two lines, he quotes something. And that quote obviously would have had meaning for the original audience as well. And, um, and the last thing is, uh, is this notion of the... Oh, dear. <laughs> of the Sabbath rest. And so what, um, the, uh, so what was the author trying to do by bringing up the Sabbath rest as well? And so the strategy that I want to try to lay out to drawing meaning out of this text is to, instead of going directly from, I guess, text to meaning for our lives, is to go from the text to step into the shoes of the original audience, ask what the meaning would have been for them, and then in view of that, what is the meaning for our lives? That may seem like a really just long cyclical route to get to the same point, but James Joyce said that sometimes the longest way around is the shortest way home. So hopefully that's what we end up doing. And so now we want to step into the shoes of the first century Jews or Jewish Christians, who this letter was written to. And a way to do that is to really see the world through their eyes is to talk about their worldview. And we don't typically talk about worldviews very much because they're implied in everything that we do. But if we want to see this letter through their eyes, you know, 2,000 years ago, all the way across the world, we really need to kind of step into their shoes. And so a way that you can talk about worldviews is to talk about the stories uh, the culture tells. You talk about their questions and answers. their symbols, and a symbol is just a small thing that the culture attaches a huge amount of meaning to that wouldn't really make sense to someone outside the culture. Like the American flag, for instance, with us. When you see one, you have all these images drawn up, maybe the Pledge of Allegiance or freedom or all these things, whereas someone maybe across the world in a different time would look at the flag and not have any of those resonances come up. And so, and so the last thing is the praxis, which is just the day-to-day -day behavior of this culture. And so I'm going to talk mostly about the questions and answers and symbols. And three fundamental questions to um, a culture is who are we? Uh, what's wrong? And what's the solution? And so if we can begin to answer these questions through the eyes of the first century Israel, then we can begin to see this letter through their eyes. And so I just drafted up these answers to questions that, these answers that they would have had to these questions. And so if you have asked a general first century Jewish person, they would say, who are we? We are Israelites, people set aside by Yahweh, the one true God, as his own people. The Lord promised our forefather Abraham that he would guide and bless us if we remain faithful to him. The way we show our faithfulness to God is by acting in accordance with the statutes he's passed down to us through Moses. Our task is to reflect the Lord's glory to all the nations until the time comes when all of creation will be reconciled to its creator. And so their main task really is to reflect the glory of the Lord to the nations. And they did that by acting in the ways that the Lord wanted them to act. And those were centered around the, I guess, the central symbols in Jerusalem. I'm going to need another page. Uh, the, and, and these were uh, land, 
which was Israel. That's the land that the Lord led them to and blessed them with. Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible that really told the Israelites how to live their lives and how to live their day-to-day lives. And the last one is Temple. And this is where the presence of the Lord dwelt on this earth. This is where they went to worship, went to sacrifice. Their entire cultural system was really set, set around the temple. So now we get to what is wrong. The Romans have occupied and ruled over our land since Pompey arrived with his army and desecrated the Jerusalem and the temple in 63 BC. Though we still live in the land the Lord gave us, we are captives in it. The government set up by the Romans does not submit itself to God and mocks our way of life. Though we are legally allowed to practice Torah, our culture is permeated by pagan influences. We are fighting a losing battle to maintain ourselves as a unique nation to honor the Lord. Though we can still sacrifice and worship in the temple, the wrong sort of people are ruling it. And so we see this culture where they have all these pagan influences. Their one task is to be a separate, special people. And they're pushed in from all these sides to give up their sacred cultural things like their land, their Torah and temple, and to value the things that the Roman Empire valued. Um, But the important thing to note is that they didn't see this Roman occupation as just just bad luck, that, you know, woe is me mentality. They saw that as the Lord bringing his wrath upon them because of their disobedience. They saw it as they brought this upon themselves. And so the only solution, which I'll talk about here, so what is the solution? All of these misfortunes and injustices are a result of our own disobedience to the Lord. We must repent and turn our hearts wholly to him. We must not abandon our task and compromise or assimilate our beliefs with the Romans. We must hold fast to the hope that the Lord will deliver us from our plight if we remain faithful to him. And so their disobedience was what brought this wrath, these bad times, upon them. And the only way out of it was to find out how they were being disobedient, fix that, become more obedient, and then repent, return to the Lord. And then he will rescue them. Somehow, um, he will rescue them and put them back in the time of good times. And so, now we can begin to see just the situation that the author of Hebrews was facing. He's writing this letter to a people that know that their Lord is angry with them because they are being disobedient. And that the one thing that they don't want to do is to stray from the path of the Lord and assimilate to these foreign strange beliefs. And so, the author of Hebrews really needs to convince these people the first century Jews, first century Jewish Christians that are kind of drifting away, that the way of Jesus, the gospel, isn't just another one of these alternate belief systems trying to seduce them away from fidelity to their one true God. It was the solution that Yahweh had provided for them. And so it would just be an absolute tragic irony, really, if the solution that the Lord had provided them to get out of their problem, they just turned their ears to that and said, you know, that's just another one of those pagan influences trying to bring me away from God. And so what the author of Hebrews needs to say is, this is the solution. You need to follow this path, or else what you're going to end up doing is becoming disobedient to the God that you strive so hard to to serve. And so now, we can get back into the text themselves. And so we get to this guy, Joshua. I'm going to need another page. And so... Joshua was charged with the task of leading the Israelites after Moses had died. So Moses led the Israelites all the way from Egypt to where God rescued them from Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years. And the Lord was angry with the Israelites because after he rescued them from Israel, they, uh, they just turned their hearts from them. They were grumbling that life was better in Egypt. And so he didn't bring them to the promised land, the land he had promised them, the land that they could be sovereign over and rule. 
until 40 years into it, um, they get to just the, it's the bank of the Jordan River. Moses dies, and Joshua is charged with the task of bringing them into the promised land. And so the, uh, um, but, so they got into the promised land, but as people in the first century knew very well, the story really didn't end there. They didn't get to live happily ever after. They got into the land, everything that they had wanted, a place that they could cultivate, have rulers over, and just worship and love the Lord. They had everything they wanted, but in time, they drifted away. And they kind of got into the cycle of what kind of defined the rest of Israel for the, for the whole Old Testament, which is they're in this time of disobedience. And all the while, so the Lord is going to be on this line, and he'll be patient for a little while. But then, as they become more and more disobedient, the Lord pours his wrath out on the Israelites. And that that typically took the form of a foreign nation coming in, wiping them out, scattering them across the, the rest of the nations, until the time would come when they would see the folly of their ways, and... Uh, they would repent. All right. And then the Lord would rescue his people, bring them back to the land, and then they would enter this time of blessing. There we go. Um, and the... The first century Israelites knew very well what time period that they were in. They were in this time of disobedience and wrath. So the Lord was angry with them for their disobedience. And so as a result, the Romans are coming in, ruling over them. And what they need to do is repent, and then the Lord will rescue them and bless them. But the altar of Hebrews is trying to tell them that they're not here. Or they actually are here, but the door is open for them to be here. God has provided a way out, and that way out is through Jesus. But... Jewish, the, the Jewish people, their audience, knew very well that that wasn't the case. Because you could look all throughout the Old Testament, and there are great examples of what it looks like during this time, during the time of blessing. And that time really didn't look like what they saw now. And a perfect example of, of what it looked like when the Lord was pouring out his blessing on his people is in Micah 4, uh, 2 through 5. And I'll go ahead and read that. It says, Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples, and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine, and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So the author of Hebrews' audience knew very well that this hadn't happened. Nation was still taking up sword against nation. Every man didn't have their own vine, their own fig tree. And so the author of Hebrews has this added challenge to convince them that the door is open to this time of blessing, but it just doesn't look like what they thought it was going to look like. So he needs to build his case further. And he does this by quoting Psalm 95. 
And this is actually the fifth time he quotes this psalm in two chapters. So he was really trying to deliver an important message through this psalm. But starting from verse 7, he says, Therefore, God again said a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So everyone that would have heard this initially would have known that this is a psalm of exile. That David here in this psalm is using imagery from the wilderness wanderings. He speaks of 40 years. Um, in this psalm. He speaks of 40 years wandering in the wilderness to remind Israel that, the, I guess to evoke images of, of this time of wandering in the wilderness and how the Lord had miraculously rescued Israel from their plight. They were lorded over by, by the Egyptians and he cast down all the plagues, parted the Red Sea. He did all these wonderful things, but the Israelites didn't respond to him in the correct way. They grumbled. They kind of rebelled against him. They sought after idols. And so the Lord didn't rescue them, really, until they turned their heart to him. So what really matters isn't the Lord providing rescue. It's how his people respond to that rescue. And David faced the exact same situation. And the author of Hebrews is making the claim that the exact same situation faces them now, that the Lord had provided this rescue for, um, for his people. But what matters was how they respond to that. And so... Because the message that the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that the Lord has acted to rescue you, but you don't see it. And failure to see it is hardening your hearts against the Lord's direction for the lives. And so this, I was talking to Joel, and um, and he said that this reminded him of a story about Jade and Eden. And he thought Joel being gone would be would be a sermon without a Jade and Eden illustration. You would be wrong. So... <laughs> So he said, uh, he said, all growing up, Jaden and Eden, would, uh, he would tell them, don't talk to strangers. If you don't know that man, don't go up and talk to him. And just kept reinforcing that, reinforcing that. And then a time came where they had to go to school, and their strangers just so happened to be teachers. And so, and so Joel starts to say, you can't just walk away from the teacher. You have to respect them and talk to them. And so Jaden and Eden are getting these mixed messages from their father, and that makes it seem like an inconsistency, but... Joel has been being consistent the entire time. He loves his daughters, and he wants the best for them. He wants them to be educated. And so while he's giving them mixed messages, really the heart is at the same point. And I think this models very well the situation of the Israelites, that the Lord still loves his people. He still wants the best for them. But obedience to him looks different in this situation than it did before. And to, to not respond uh, in the right way would be, to amount to hardening your hearts. They're turning away from the Lord when what they really want to do is follow him. So now we get to this point where the promise of entering his rest still stands. The author of Hebrews is saying that the door is open for us to go from this time of disobedience and wrath to this time of blessing. So what does that look like? What does obedience to the Lord now look like? It looks different than it did before Jesus. So what does it look like? And now we can begin to step back into our own shoes as 21st century Christians because that's an all-important question to us. What does a life obedient to the Lord, what does a life that follows Jesus really look like? So here are my answers to our 21st century worldview questions. Who are we? We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are charged with the task of shining forth the glory of God to this world by living as Jesus taught his disciples, by embodying love and forgiveness in all we do. This would be impossible of our own power, but the spirit of the Lord dwells in us to direct and guide us. We, all people are created in the image of God and are meant to reflect his glory. We must strive to show the world who the Lord is by our words and actions. So what is wrong? We are constantly falling short of the examples set forth by Jesus. 
Every day we choose our desires instead of the Lord's. We seek our glory instead of his, and we care more for our own comfort than we do about showing the world who the Lord is by the way that we act. As a result, this world shows more evidence of man's brokenness than it does of God's loving grace. Now what's the solution? Um, and here now our situation is a little bit different than first century Israel's, in that we know that we're not waiting for the Lord to conquer evil. He already has done so. And with Jesus' example and the guidance of the Spirit, we should have everything we need to bring forth the kingdom of God. Jesus t- charged us with the task of completing the kingdom he kind of inaugurated and started. So we are to be the hands, the feet, the body of Christ. But a lot of the times we don't act like it. And so what we find in the cycle of the Israelites, where they have disobedience, repentance, blessing, so, much, so many times that characterizes my life and the time, and I think the lives of a lot of Christians nowadays, to where you're in this time of sin where you're not obedient to the Lord, and it takes a while for you to realize how that's negatively affecting everyone around you and yourself. And so you repent, and then Lord rescues from that, and then you enter this time of blessing where everything is good. But then that time of blessing turns into this time of contentment where that sin starts to look a little bit more appealing, and you just drift away, and you go right back to where you were to begin with in disobedience. And so the cycle continues. And to me, I, I guess... I don't think that the Lord can use us, really, if we have that kind of unrepented sin in our life. If we're kind of chasing our tail like that in this cycle of disobedience, repentance, and blessing, we really can't be used as the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about just general sin in our lives. I think there are, there are always going to be ways that we fall short of the glory of God, that we fail to reflect him and his love to the people around us. I'm more talking about what Joel talked about a lot last week, is the sin that we know is in our lives, sin that we know is there, that we know is negatively affecting our relationships, that we know that it's keeping us separate from the Lord, but that we refuse to relinquish and sacrifice up to God. And that could be anything from, I don't know, addictions to the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, to even like a fear we might have that's keeping the Lord from using us in ways that he would like to. And so we need to find some way to break out of this cycle of disobedience, repentance, and blessing and find something better. And so I think that we, as followers of Christ, really have no right to look at the problems of the world and wonder why they're there if we're not willing to just give up every part of everything that we are for the Lord to use for his purposes. So now we get to this point of what does it look like to live a life that's obedient to Christ? How do we, how do we now follow God after Christ? And that is such a difficult question just because it doesn't look the same for everyone. It looks different, completely different for every single person. So you can't just flip open the Bible and find a checklist to say, I need to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to have a life that's obedient to God. All we get when we open the Bible are really hints at what it looks like to follow Jesus, hints of what it looks like to follow God. And I think the author of Hebrews provides us two pretty important ones. And the first is that somehow following God is equated to a Sabbath rest, that there's some kind of connection to following Jesus and submitting ourselves to God and this notion of a Sabbath rest. So the first century understanding of the Sabbath rest was when we step back into their shoes, they saw themselves in this time of disobedience and wrath. So what did they need to do? They needed to increase obedience. What they were initially doing with the Sabbath obviously wasn't enough, So, and the Sabbath was just a time when they were supposed to rest from their works on the seventh day. And so what they thought was more obedience would be more rules, more mounting more things up, and, and that that would perhaps please the Lord. But Jesus and the author of Hebrews is trying to reclaim the true meaning, really, of the Sabbath, in that it's more than anything else, not to be a burden, but a gift, like a time for his people to rest and rejoice in who the Lord is and what he's done. 
And, and that's, that's how you see Jesus using the Sabbath. And, but, but then we see all throughout the Bible that this rest that he calls us into isn't simply kicking our feet up and being idle. Just all the way from the first Sabbath, we see God creating everything, and then he rests for a day. But then he spends the rest of the Old Testament chasing after and pursuing his people. And then we have Jesus, who can say in one breath, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And then in another breath he says, Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And Paul, once again, captures this thought. He's in 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So we see this strange connection between sufferings and, and, um, and comfort, sufferings and rest. And those, at first appearance, seem to be mutually exclusive, but I think we need to figure out what this notion of rest is that he's offering to us. Like, is, is this simply false advertising? Is God just luring us in with promises of rest and comfort? And then gives us the bait and switch and says, oh, no, you're getting suffering and a cross to bear. Like, that's, that's not what he's doing. But, but, but really what he calls, and we need to be frank about this, isn't a break from suffering and pain. He really calls us into an immersion into them. Like, we don't get that vine and fig tree that Micah talked about. Jesus says we get a cross to bear. And, you know, these are always strange words for people like me to say. I feel like it's trite and empty sometimes for me, a 23-year-old grad student, to talk about suffering when, you know, there are people all across the world that are legitimately being demanded their lives for following Jesus. And so when I think about suffering, I think it's important to not really focus on physical situations that we're in, but more our willingness to be used by God in every single way. So, and that's easy, or I guess it's clear for people that are in other countries that are being tortured because of their faith. It is 100% clear that they have given up everything. They have everything on the line for Jesus. They have sacrificed everything to him to be used. But for us, it's a little more unclear. We have to really probe and ask ourselves the difficult questions. Is there anything in my heart that I'm holding back from God? And ask those questions day by day by day because it might not be clear by the way that we live our lives. And so, and so instead of being about physical situations, it's more about our willingness to follow the Lord no matter what the cost. And so this will bring us to do things for reasons we really can't see and bring us pain that we might not be able to rationalize. But the peace that comes is knowing that the God that we're serving, the God who is directing us into all these times, whether they be trouble or blessing, is good, and that his purposes are good, and that he can see all ends. And that though we might not be able to see how the season that we are going through is going to amount to just something wonderful and glory, that will bring God glory and bring us joy, that we know that he can see those things. And it also brings us peace that God doesn't demand anything of us except our obedience. He will provide us the strength to go through whatever he brings us to and the path. And he doesn't ask, He doesn't look at all the problems of this world and say, you guys figure it out on your own. Because that, that, would, that would just be terrible. He actually has a plan. He, wants to, he is so willing and desiring to orchestrate the body of Christ to solve the problems of this world if only we would relinquish ourselves to be used by him and that we would give up all these parts of our heart, all these unrepented sins, we would cast away and allow ourselves to be used by God. And Victor Hugo has this quote. It's one of my favorites, and I think it, uh, it, it just talks about this really well. It says, If we want to be happy, we must never understand duty. For as soon as we understand it, it is implacable. It is as though it punishes you for understanding it. But no, it rewards you for it. 
for it puts you in a hell where you feel God at your side. And so the suffering that we are called into is made so much better because only when we do suffer, only when we do sacrifice everything that, you know, do sacrifice our comfort, only then does the Lord really become real in our lives, I guess. It's only then that he truly reveals himself to us. We say that God is a father that loves to provide for his children, but I think that until we get to the point where we really need for him to provide for us, that we're not, you know, we, that we can't just take care of all our own needs, no question asked, until we get to the point where we're desperate on the Lord to bring us through a situation, only then does it really become real. Does it turn from real knowledge to belief that the Lord is a God of providence, that he does like to provide for his children. And so we look through the Bible, and we see all these people that have given up everything for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God. And these people are just in such terrible situations that really, by all accounts, have no right to be rejoicing, but they do. Like Paul, you could go on a list of all the stuff he had to deal with because of his obedience to Christ. It was terrible. But then in Philippians 4.4, 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And so in the midst of all this pain, all this suffering that he goes through, somehow there is this suffering, to, there is this joy, there is this peace to be found. And, um, and then the second hint is, uh, is in verse 2. It says, For we have also heard the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. And I think in my eyes that really the only way to avoid despair, like when, when times do get difficult, when suffering does come, really the only way to avoid despair is to believe, to have faith in God, to have faith that he is good, and that he will provide us a way to get out of whatever problem we might be in. How could we not fall away if we close our ears to the Lord telling us that we are his treasured children, that he does want to bring redemption to this world through us, and that he does love us, and he does suffer with us, and he feels just all the pain that we go through. And so how could we not fall away if we close our ears to that, and just to shy away from his hand that wants to guide us through through these times? There's no way not to despair unless we believe God is who he says he is. And so now we get to the point of how can we escape from this cycle of repentance, or disobedience, repentance, and blessing. And I think the cycle is to, is to submit more of ourselves to God. And, and only then will we, will we believe more. And so, so it's the cycle of so we give ourselves over to be used by God for his purposes. And then, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then as, as we suffer, as we go through that time of trial, that time of pain, God reveals more of himself to us. He becomes closer to us. We develop a more intimate relationship with him. And so we end up trusting him more. And it becomes, I guess, easier to submit more and more of ourselves to him. And then as we do that, he reveals more of himself to us. And so we just get in this cycle of submission and belief. As we submit more to him, it becomes more easy to trust him with everything that we are. And I think that is really, that's the point that we get to where the body of Christ is truly acting as the body of Christ. I think that is when, when we collectively and individually submit everything that we are, all of our talents, everything, all of our time, all of our resources, to the Lord's purposes, that's when we'll start to see the glory of God be more evident in this world than just man's brokenness that we look throughout and see so many things wrong. But I think us, as the people of God, as the body of Christ, can certainly be used to, uh, to eliminate that suffering. And, uh, and so I guess what it all boils down to is that the same choice, I guess, is before us that was before the first century 
um, audience that the author of Hebrews was talking to. This is, we can close our ears to the Lord's will for our lives and pursue our own ends. We can accept this wonderful salvation he has provided and allow him to guide us towards something greater than we, can, than we could conceive of. And so it is my just hope and prayer that as a church, as the garden, that we can really just, just give up everything that we are just to serve the Lord and to find out what that looks like. Because that is a difficult question that, I mean, takes a lifetime maybe to answer. But, but it's certainly a question worth pursuing. And so I am so happy that seven months ago, or however long it was, I found this church. That's when I moved to Baltimore. I never thought I would be here now. That's just another example of how the Lord works in unexpected ways. But, um, but, but yeah, it's just such a blessing to find a group of people that just love the Lord so much and want to figure out what it looks like to serve him and to know him. And my prayer is that moving forward throughout the rest of this year and onwards, that we would really just submit everything that we are to bringing forth the kingdom into this city. So just pray with me. Father, it is such a wonderful honor that we can just know and serve you better. Um, God, that you want to work through us to bring redemption to this city, to this world. That that is the method you chose. You could have done so many other things, Lord, but, but you chose to work and display your love and your glory to this world through us. And so I pray that we really just make ourselves equal to such a huge task, God, that we lay down everything, that we don't seek after our own comfort. But, Lord, that is, that is your kingdom that we seek out. That when we say, Lord, that your kingdom come, your will be done, that we truly mean it, and that we will give up everything that we are to bring forth that kingdom, God. Because you are, you are certainly worth it. There is nothing else in this world worth pursuing than, than you, God. And so I pray that we really just take that to heart as a church, as a people, and that we can really just bring your love to this city, Lord. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen.